We're going to continue in that work this morning as we continue in the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who've been with us for a while, you know that we are finishing up this series. This week and next will be, uh, Lord willing, will be the finish of the series next week. And so today we're going to continue in the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who've been with us, you know we spent a couple weeks on the crucifixion of Jesus, which is a hard and heavy topic, and it's felt that way. I don't know if you felt that yourself, but it's definitely felt that way as we've considered deeply the suffering and the price that was paid for sin in the world. But today we're going to come to what is essentially in the Gospel of Mark, the period on the end of the sentence. If you think about the entire narrative, we've been following Jesus, so much that we celebrate about Jesus, and then we get to this place where Mark puts this little, just endpoint on his gospel. So we want to spend some time thinking about what, why this changes everything that came before it. I'm going to ask you, you do what we always do. I'm going to ask you to pray before we get into God's word, and then we'll turn there. So let's pray together. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunities you've given us uh, to follow you and to know you. We thank you for the power and the truth of your word, your gospel, the, the Bible you've had captured and recorded that we might grow in you. And we come today seeking your own wisdom. Father, we know that we have a tendency to chase after the wisdom of the world. But today, for this moment, for this time, we want to hear from you. So would you do that work in our lives? And Father, I pray that the wisdom that would be granted to us would be of your spirit and not of our own, of your insights and not of mine, of your truth and not a false truth at all. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have now to come to this culmination experience in your gospel story. We pray that it would set deeply in our souls and it would transform our lives as we move forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're actually in the 16th chapter of the gospel of Mark, if you've not been with us. A couple slides behind here. There we go. It's on page 713 of the Bibles and the end of the chair rows. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, otherwise it's the very end, right before Luke. Um, it should be literally right in front of the title page for Luke, probably for you. And I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm going to read some of the context from last week, and then we're going to jump into today's verses, which is 1 through 8. And so I'm actually going to start reading at 42 and verse 15 real quick. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. And so as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead, and so he summoned the centurion who had watched him die and asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was true, he gave the body to Joseph. And so Joseph brought some linen cloth and took down the body from the cross, wrapped it in a linen, and placed it in a tomb that was cut out of a rock. He then rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And we heard this last week, but Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, by the way, I kept messing up last week, Joseph, it's Joseph, (laughs) was there where he was laid. They saw Jesus laid in the tomb. So, that's, now we're going to jump right in 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Verse 2, very early, in the ne- very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb when they asked each other, uh, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? 
Okay, so I want to stop for a minute because this is the culmination of the Easter story, the culmination of the gospel story, the culmination of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we've said that, and we spent much time meditating, and as did Mark, rightfully so, on the death of Jesus on the cross, why he must die, how he died, and, and what that does uh, for sinners like us, the rightful position that we should have on that cross like Barabbas, who should have died instead of Jesus. But now we have this, this um, weird timeline, and, and so I wanted to spend a minute working through the timeline. I, last week in family group, we had some questions come up about what's happening here between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, as we call it in the church, and why? What's going on? And so I want to go way back to Good Friday real quick and remind ourselves that he was crucified at 9 a.m. On, on Friday morning. Remember, at noon on Friday, about midday, the, the darkness fell over the land, and at three, Jesus breathed his last. Now, I want to talk because the very first line here in 16 says, when Sabbath was over, and if you look back what we just read, he went, um, Joseph went to Pilate because it was a Sabbath, and he wanted to take down, uh, yeah, see, it was a preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, and so as evening approached, it says, Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and said, can I take the body of Jesus down? And we have to have some functional understanding of the way the Jewish days and nights works, we could understand what this means. Because some questions that might come up for you that have come up for me before is, like, well, how is it Good Friday and then Sunday and he was uh, three days later going to be raised? That's not three days, right? If I say I'm going to see you in three days, it's, I usually think it's Sunday from Friday. How does that work? And then what's this whole Sabbath resting about anyway and why is that a big deal? And, and then not to mention this is a Passover festival that's been happening for a week in Jerusalem. Remember, we, we've been following Jesus in and out of the Passover celebrations as he's been proclaiming the kingdom of God. What's going on here? So we have the the 9 o'clock crucifixion, the, the noon darkness, the 3 o'clock death of Jesus, and what you have is you have the evening being the beginning of Sabbath. Remember we talked about that a little bit, that in the Jewish calendar, or the Jewish calendar, Jewish understanding of time, that the days go evening, then morning is a day. And that's really hard for us to get maybe our heads around because in our culture we go morning and evening, right? So you say, oh, it's the early in the morning now, right? And then, oh, it's tonight, and they'll still say it's today. But they would say that's tomorrow. And you might go, well, where does that come from in the Bible? Hmm, where does it come from? The creation narrative. Do you remember whenever God spoke everything into existence, he made everything, the word says, and it was evening and morning the first day. You see how that works? It's not like, and it was the next day in the morning. It was evening and morning the first day. Evening, morning, the second day. And by the way, while we're talking about the creation narrative, let's real quick jump through and say it was six days, and then the seventh day, which started in the evening, God what? Rested. He stopped working. Creation narrative. So the Jewish... Uh, understanding of the day cycle goes evening to morning. T this is true to this day. I, I said if you go to a Sabbath celebration service uh, uh, in a, um, a, um, a Jewish house of worship, it'll be Friday evening is a Sabbath service. That's when they celebrate, and they can do no work on Saturdays to keep the law. So what you, why that's a big deal is because we have Joseph here going to Pilate urgently saying, can I take the body of Jesus down because he has to do the work before Sabbath starts. 
because he's a good Jew and he can't work on the Sabbath. And so when he goes to Pilate and says, can I, the urgency here at 3 o'clock is, can I get Jesus' body down now and get him in a tomb? He has about three hours. It would all depend on sunset, by the way. You had to, you had to, the Sabbath began before sunset to be safe, and it would end when there were three stars appear in the sky. Did you know that? that when three scar, stars appear in the sky the next day, you know Sabbath is now over. But you had to honor the Sabbath. And so we have Joseph of Arimathea who goes and takes the body of Jesus and lays him in the tomb Friday night before sunset. And then Sabbath begins. So we have to understand that because what it says there in verse 1 is, when Sabbath was over then, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. So they were, they were um, sh showing up to anoint Jesus' body. I want to say one more thing about this idea of the timeline, then we're going to move on to um, this idea of the Sabbath rest. We're going to spend some time here because it's a big deal. What's, what's Jesus doing after his death on the cross, what's he doing? We, we, we think he must have been doing something. I don't know if you believe that's what I, I, he must have been doing something, right? He must have been somewhere. Um, Jesus himself had said in the same gospel, I think it was in Mark 14, I will be raised in three days. I will be raised in three days. If I, I had to do this because I'm, I just want to know. I'm like, well, now, wait a minute. Is this a problem? Does this make sense? How does this work? And so I actually wrote it out on a piece of paper for myself. I just want to understand in my head, how is it three days? Because it was kind of bugging me. But if you think about it, Jesus died at 3 p.m. on Friday, right? So that's the day he dies. And then Saturday begins on Sabbath, which is the evening, of Friday, we would say, and then all day until Saturday evening. You with me? Then, after Sabbath is over, it's nighttime, we would say, Saturday night, right? And the word says what? Very early on the first day of the week. This would be Sunday. So, between Saturday night, Sabbath ending, and Sunday morning sunrise, the women begin to prepare spices to go to take Jesus' body. So, you have Friday, he's dead. Saturday, he's He's resting. And Sunday, he's raised. In three days, I will be raised. That was a proclamation. As a matter of fact, church, listen to me for a minute. This was the misunderstanding that Jesus said, you will destroy a temple and in three days it will be raised without human hands. In three days, he will be raised. So we have then the third day resurrection. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It's a big deal to you. It really is a big deal to me. I'm like, oh, right. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. He died on Friday. Rested on Saturday. Was raised on Sunday on the third day. Here we go then. A Sabbath observed. Look, when Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And I started thinking, well, what's, what's happening? And this came up in our family discussion. What's Jesus doing while he's dead? Where has Jesus gone? 
And, and we can make a, a lot of assumptions, and maybe you'll even have some things in the Bible you'll say, well, you know, it says over here that, that Jesus set captives free, so that, that must be when Jesus is setting captives free. He, he must have gone somewhere to do something. He said to the thief on the cross, I'll be with you today in paradise, not in three days in paradise. I'll be with you today in paradise. So that there must have been somewhere Jesus went somewhere immediately. I want to think through the idea of Sabbath in its multiple forms. Here's the first. God's creation narrative. I want to remind you that before, listen to me, before God rested, he had created mankind and all the birds of the field, all the birds of the air and the animals of the field and the fish of the sea and the creation was there. It was beautiful. He said it was very good. And after he said it was very good, he stopped and just gloried in what he had made. Before we get to Genesis 3, God is just fulfilled with what he has done and who he is. He is satisfied in his creation. And we have to understand that. We have to understand that. that at that, that moment in time, God is completely pleased. He says it is very good. You remember he said it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's very good. And he rested just to enjoy his creation just to celebrate himself. God is pleased. Nothing else, listen, needs to be done. Nothing. He's finished. The second way I want us to think about the Sabbath is the weekly remembrance of this, right? In the calendar. Every seven days, you need to stop to realize that, you know, you aren't critical to what God is doing, that he is more than capable of doing anything he wants done so you can stop for a day. The world does not depend on us. And there was this idea that you could do nothing on the Sabbath except share food. That's what the Sabbath was for. And so for one day a week, you had to pre-prepare and be ready, but on the day, you did nothing. I think I told you before, but the observance of, observance of the law went to such extents that you would light your stove on the day before Sabbath so that on the Sabbath it was already lit and you did no work because <laughs> lighting a stove would be work. <laughs> so you pre-lit the stove so you could put the food in. I don't know how that wasn't work, but that's how they did it sometimes, right? You observing that God is more than capable to accomplish everything in this life. Boy, we could learn that lesson. The way we chase ourselves around seven days a week, 24 days, we could learn the lesson that you can stop for a day because God is more than capable. And, and if you think that you can't stop for a day, you vastly underestimate the power and the presence and the reality of who God is, and you vastly overestimate your own importance even to your own life. Weekly observance of the Sabbath. So this was a thing, right? The third way we want to look at the Sabbath is this annual celebration. I, this has been now for a week. They've been in and out of Jerusalem celebrating the Passover feast. Passover is unique because it's like an annualized celebration of Sabbath. So much so that, this, that the Passover began with the Sabbath day of rest, and then it ended with the Sabbath day of rest and a, the Feast of Unleavened Bread all week. 
And to remember God's deliverance. You know this, right? Passover was to remember God's deliverance. But there were seven days that they celebrated. And so I wanted to say that because that means that this Sabbath, when Joseph goes to, to Pilate and says, can I have the body? This is the high, holiest Sabbath. I mean, this isn't just another Saturday he has to stop working. This is the one they've been waiting for all year. You'll remember as well in the Gospel of Mark, it was recorded that they did not want to crucify Jesus and kill him now because it was the Passover. But it's happened. During Passover, Jesus has given his life for the sins of all people. And now there's this high holy day of Sabbath rest, annualized, remembered, and is, is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. By the way, there's so much we could unpack here and we do not have time. But remember Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware. It's that little bit, unleavened bread. It's perfectly clean. That's the, the Sabbath celebration that's happening here at the end of Passover. The perfectly clean, um, without error or flaw offering that God has made for his people. I mean that in the desert, right? That's what it was. For manna, that was on leaving bread. All right. The fourth then is God. I want us to see in this Sabbath remembrance God's own work being done. Do, do you remember what Jesus said from the cross? He said, Tetalistai. Means it is finished. The work is done. We think about Joseph of Arimathea coming and saying, can I quick take down the body of Jesus? But Jesus had fully accomplished all the work that was laid out for him to do. Everything God had intended for Jesus to do, Jesus had done before the high, holy observance of Passover. See, there's some error, I think, in our understanding of the biblical narrative when we read that and go, he must have been somewhere doing something. As if it would be dishonoring for Jesus to rest because he had done everything God had done before before it was you know uh, when it was required before the day of rest came there's this idea that everyone is at rest listen God himself is observing Sabbath something else though so, so you have, you ha we have to see that Jesus and God observing rest. It's finished. It's done. But then you have the Jewish people continuing their Sabbath habits, you know. Um, oh, we got it. Joseph of Arimathea, a man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. is like, oh, we got it done. Whew. Think for a minute about the disciples who, who were being raised in this Jewish culture and everyone's resting and they're mourning that Jesus has died. Like, this Sabbath must have been like no other. What must they wanted to go and do? What must, they, they must have thought, they were out. There was nothing else they could accomplish. There was no, they couldn't even follow Jesus anymore. Like, they couldn't, literally couldn't follow him anymore because it was done. There was like a line in the sand and they could do no more. And so this Sabbath they sat and just waited. What can be done? They, we know that they observe the Sabbath because it says after Sabbath, that's not an accident, when Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices. They were waiting until they could go and anoint the body of Jesus to, to clean his wounds, to dress his bandages, to 
apply salve, to soak up the blood, to make the body look like presentable. This was the, the man that they had followed and loved, and they, they just wanted to do something to respect him. You remember, by the way, that the women were the ones who were there at the end. They saw his brutality. They saw what was done to him. And, and they, they were like, this cannot stand. Joseph put him in the tomb, but we have to go, and we're going to dress his body and make him presentable. He, he's been disrespected, and we will respect him. But they wait till after Sabbath in order to do it. This is why Joseph wanted to take the body down with such urgency. Lest Jesus hang on the cross as a mockery all day on Sabbath. Instead, he was resting in a tomb. The last thing I want to say about Sabbath and this whole idea is that God had delivered his people that in this Sabbath, I want you to think about it in the big picture. We talk about the cross of Christ and where we should have died, but I want you to think about it in this moment in time. We are amazed by the creation narrative, seven days, you know, six days, and then God says, very good, and he rests. If we think he's satisfied in six days of creation, with all, if you read your Bible, with all the sin and destruction and perversion that comes after that, to think about the work that Jesus had done in that moment, that he had fulfilled, he had finished the work, he had said, if there's a way that could pass, but it didn't pass, and he took the cup, and he drank the cup, if, that God is satisfied in that work, and he rests. Why? Listen to me, because God had delivered his people. God had delivered them. We're amazed at the story of, of Moses running from the Egyptians and the Pharisee, or the um, Pharaoh, and he's trapped by the water. We're amazed that he steps in the water and it parts, and the people go across, and the enemy comes in and crashes. We're amazed by the story. We tell us to our kids, oh, listen, kids, you got to hear the story about God. He can make a way when there's no way. He delivered his people from sin. Like, it was the biggest deal ever. You think creation is impressive? Restoring creation is impressive. You know what I mean? You, you, think, you, this is what, you think your sin is a lot? Paying for all of your sin is more. God had made a way on Passover to deliver his people. This is the heart of the gospel. And in this moment, God is fully satisfied. He said, it's very good in creation. What do you think he said? In this moment with his son. There's a verse in scripture that says the, um, there's the great yes in Christ. Yes. Yes. That's what God says. As a matter of fact, and now we're going to foreshadow a bit on three through eight. The people in Jerusalem came to Jesus. Remember what they said? Show us a sign. Show us a sign. We just want a sign. Give us a sign. We'll believe you. Remember? Even on the cross, mock him. Come down off that cross, and then we'll see him believe. Remember they said that, right? What did Jesus say? No sign will be given to you except that of Jonah. Jonah. What an esoteric, like, uh, you know, uh, reference. And look at the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? I just want to spend a minute, and we're going to talk about this idea that Jesus is raised. You remember Jonah swallowed by a fish because he was disobedient to God? Different story. But he's in the fish. He prays to God. If you read it in, the, in, in Jonah, he prays to God. And then the word says that the fish vomits Jonah out of his mouth. Vomits him out of his mouth. I, I don't know what you think about when you think about vomiting. 
but it's, it's not a passive word. <laughs> it's not like you just roll up and drop your tongue and go, at your leisure, make your way out. Expelled. And Jesus had told him, you want a sign? There's going to be a sign. The sign of Jonah. What's he talking about? Is he talking about a son of disobedience who would be forced by God to do what God was requiring? No, I don't think he is. Jesus is referring to his own inability, listen, to be held in a grave. The fish spat out, vomited Jonah. The grave could not hold. We think, like, was he fighting his way out of there? No, no. All right, let's get into the resurrection here. Verse 3. On the way, the women are talking very practically. On, and they're, they're saying on the way, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? You remember that Joseph rolled the stone in front of the entrance to the tomb. That's what the word says. If you read it, he covered the tomb with a stone. Joseph did that. But three women on the way go, we are not going to be able to do this. How are we going to get the stone moved so we can get into the tomb and then be Jesus' body? How are they going to do this work? So there must have been some concern on their part. It's a very practical matter of how they're going to get access to Jesus. That's what they're wondering. How are we going to get in there to our Lord and anoint his body? How are we going to honor him? How are we going to be in his presence? How are we going to take care of him if that stone is in the way? Interestingly enough, it says um, in verse 4, but when they looked up, right, so you have this idea that before that they were not looking up. They were looking down and they were wondering, how are we going to roll the stone away? Who's going to move it for us? <laughs> Did you hear that? <laughs> who? Who? Come on, church. You looking at it? Who is going to move the stone? And when they look up from being downcast, looking down, they see what? The stone, which indeed was very large, had already been rolled away. It was done. It was done. Here, I want you to see, this is the day after Sabbath rest, and like, okay, we're going to go do some more work. We're going to do some work for Jesus. We're going to show up for Jesus. We're going to anoint Jesus. We're going to take care of Jesus. Who's going to move the rock? I don't know how we're going to do this. There's three of us. We can try, but we're not going to be able to do it. And when they stop looking at their own problems, their own brokenness, and they look up, they realize it's already been moved. It's already been done. Who's going to do it? It was already moved. Look at what the word says. Verse 5. And let me just say something for courageous women here. Who are these women? <laughs> let me just say, I'm not sure I would even want to show up at, an empty, uh, at a full grave to anoint a body. I don't think I'd even want that job. But then when they show up and the tomb is empty, verse 5 says so casually, and they entered the tomb. They just rolled right in. Like, I know you're probably thinking, well, Bill, they were planning on going in already. But seriously, I would be a little freaked out already. Maybe you wouldn't. I'd be freaked out. I'm telling you. The two, how, how is it open? I have so many questions. They go right in, it says. And then they see a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were out of their minds. The word says alarmed here. Um, some of yours might say amazed, or some might, some of your translators might say afraid. It means they flipped out. <laughs> of all the things they expected to see when they entered the tomb, they did not to expect to see a young man sitting on the right side in a white robe. That's not what they thought they were going to see. Right? They come to see Jesus, and they see a young man 
on the right side. I, I wish I could understand how exactly this tomb was laid out. I know there's been a lot of speculation about how it's laid out and you know, the way people were buried at that time and all that, but what must they have experienced going in there expecting? Have you ever been shocked? You know, have you ever been surprised? Uh, one of the favorite games that we play in our household is scare the person who doesn't expect it. Does anybody play that game? <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, you know, somebody's like brushing their teeth or something, you just, you're walking by, you're in it, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is going to be fun. You back up, <laughs> right? This is what experience. Like, they're going to go in there, and they think they know what they're going to see, and then, whoa, it's not what they expect, and they're out of their mind. Our family always says you can feel it in your fingertips. That's what our, <laughs> they scare you good enough, you feel it in your fingertips. They were freaked out, man. Who's the young man? I've seen some places that says it's an angel, right? Who, who's the young man? This is a funny thing to me. Just an odd connection. I'll throw it out there. You all can chew on it and think about it if you want to. This word is used twice in the Gospel of Mark. Once here in the empty tomb with a man dressed in a flowing white robe going to the ground. I've read it's supposed to um, resemble some authority, you know, to, to have a long, uh, flowing, white, by the way, gleaming, uh, glorious. Um, white's a hard thing to keep clean. The other place that's used in the Gospel of Mark, that word, is when Jesus is being handed over. And there's a young man who's following Jesus. And they lay hold of him. And he flees without his clothes. Isn't that strange? Isn't that strange, those two? I mean, I don't know what the connection is, but I, I looked, I'm like, what? That's the only place it's mentioned, here in the tomb, and that kid who ran away when they grabbed his clothes. It could just be an anomaly of the word usage, I'm not saying, but it, who is that guy? Who's the guy that flees when Jesus is captured and is there when he's raised? I'm not saying it's the same dude, but boy, that, that's interesting to me. Sitting there on the right side where they expect to find Jesus' body. Well, that's not the end of the story. We have to read it. What happens in the tomb? Why is this a big deal? They go in. There's a guy sitting in a white robe dressed on the, uh, on the right side, and they're alarmed. Look at verse 6. He speaks first. Don't be alarmed or stop flipping out. <laughs> stop freaking out. That's what he says to him. Like, don't freak out so much, okay? You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He's risen. This one who's in the tomb, it seems, was sent to tell them this message. There was an intention. And, we, and you, I said earlier, angel, we think, you know, oh, it's an angel. You know what I mean? I think they go in there and they're like, oh, who are you? And he's like, don't be afraid. Jesus, the Nazarene, the one who was crucified, isn't here. He's raised. He's not here anymore. <laughs> Do you know, like, we have a hard time keeping things together. They must not have been listening to Jesus. To have this be an alarming thing. They weren't like, hey, let's go see the resurrection. They weren't saying, like, let's go see the body, <laughs> you know? I mean, how many times are we like that? Don't flip out. Love what the word says here. This Jesus, the one you are seeking, the Nazarene, the one having been crucified, he is risen. Lest you be confused what we're talking about, that Jesus. Lest you be confused to what we're talking about, the bloodied, beaten Jesus. Lest you be confused, the one that was mocked, spit on, punched in the face, ridiculed, tested, and laid in the tomb. 
that Jesus. He is risen. Whew. The words come so quickly. He is risen. Can you imagine? I mean, we, we talked about this idea. Jesus said it'll be the sign of Jonah, right? I, I, I won't be there. This is the one. He is risen. Look at what he says. He is not here. Look at the place where they laid him. You ever think this funny, the they language? Look at the place where they laid him. You, you saw it with your own eyes, ladies. You saw where he was. He's not here. He's risen. Verse 7. This is what we get. So you have this messenger who's there at the tomb to tell these women what's going on. You know, I'll just speculate for a minute. What happens if they show up and there's an empty tomb and there's, there's nothing? You know, what, what, what's the implication? If there's no message from God in this moment about where this Jesus that they've come to anoint is, right? There's some purpose in God's communication that would uh, kind of forestall any misunderstanding about exactly what's happened. He is risen. Look where they laid him. He's not here. So that's the message to the ladies, message to the women, right? These faithful women. Can I just ask a question, by the way? Um, where are the guys at? Where are the guys? Like, do you think that jo Joseph and Nicodemus were like, yeah, we did enough. We're not going back to the tomb. Do you think that they knew maybe that they were watching the tomb for grave robbers? They want to make sure no one messed with it? Maybe they were, they were afraid for their lives. If we go back, we're going to be so... What about Peter? Where's Peter? Sitting there. The women go in. All kind of connections here, folks. Listen. If you're one of those people that you want to talk about the Garden of Eden, who sinned first, you'll read the Bible like that, you know? Like, you see what happened there? Eve took the apple. Oh, Eve. And then Adam said it's all her. Remember the whole sin debacle in front of God? It ain't my fault. It's her fault. And they're all naked and covered up like this. They're embarrassed about their humanity. They're embarrassed about the sin in the world. They're all freaking out. It's her fault. And that's not my fault. It's that thing that fault. Listen, if you want to get all on that rampage, awesome. Then say this. But those women... They stayed. Those women, they watched Jesus give his life. And those women, they got up the day after Sabbath and they went to the tomb because they were faithful. They saw something in him. And God blessed them. He's not here. A message for the women. Listen, you guys, go tell them. Go tell them. That's what they, so the message is first to the women, and then for the women to go and share. Look, at verse 7, it's a command to the women. But go and tell his disciples, and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. That's not just as he told you. He's saying, you go tell those disciples just as he told them that he's going ahead of them in Galilee. You have a job to do, women. Go and tell others about Jesus. That's what the command is here. Go and tell the disciples. And let's just for a minute talk about this. He says, go tell all the disciples and go tell Peter. Isn't that interesting? Go tell all the disciples, those who are learning to follow Jesus, about this resurrection and go tell Peter. For a minute, I just want to try to get in the skin a little bit and say, why this message of urgency and why in this way? 
the disciples who hadn't shown up, the disciples who were waiting in the Sabbath hardship and, and wondering, probably not even remembering all that they've been taught, right? Forgetting. The number one trait of a human, human is to forget, to forget what we've been delivered from. Sitting there waiting. Go tell all those who are learning, he's not here. Okay, fair enough. I can get into that. And tell Peter. Peter, right? He's the one that was like, I don't know that dude. And then he got madder. I, by, by God's truth, I don't know that guy. And may I be condemned if I knew who he was. And I have nothing to do with this Jesus guy. One of the Gospels records that Jesus sees Peter in that moment of betrayal. Here, hey, go tell the disciples. Please go tell Peter that he's not here. He's raised, and he'll meet you in Galilee. What an awesome moment it must be. What an awesome moment, message for Peter, the one who betrayed Jesus, to know that he's not here. I want to tell you a story. Real quick, early in my faith in Christ, I came to faith by the grace of Christ. It was nothing of my own. I didn't earn it. I didn't figure it out. I didn't say the right prayer, answer the right questions. God saved me. And it's just my experience, but God saved me by his grace. And because I was saved, I was having this whole new life in Christ, and I didn't understand it. But there's this one moment, and I'm sharing this with you guys. I haven't shared this with many people. There's this moment where I began to come into church, and I would sit in church, and I would weep and weep and weep because there was a heavy presence of the reality that my sin had put Jesus on that cross and that I deserved to be on that cross and he had died in my place and I was broken. I was broken because of that and I would weep so much so that people around me in church would say, what's wrong with Bill? Why is he crying all the time? And there was one particular day where I was sitting there and I don't know if this was in church or at home. I can't tell you where this was, but I had this realization where I was down on my face and I was at the cross. I mean, I was like, at the cross. I was sitting there, and on the cross was Jesus paying for the price of all of my sins, and I was weeping and weeping and weeping. I can't even, by the way, I'm not even comfortable with this really, but I'm just telling you this is, and I'm sitting there, and I'm down, I'm going to demonstrate for y'all. I'm down like this, and I'm absolutely wrung out because my sin put Jesus on that cross. I couldn't even look anymore. I'm a believer, by the way. And in the moment, while I'm on my face, weeping over my sin and the price, I feel a hand on my shoulder, and I look up, and it's Jesus. And I'm like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and then I spin my gaze toward the cross, and it's empty. And I go, what? And I look at Jesus, and I look at the cross, and he takes my hand. And he turns me around, and as he does, as far as I can see, there are people who are down their faces weeping and wailing because of the sin that had put Jesus on the cross. And we begin to walk back through these rows and rows of people. And Jesus, he's just walking, not saying anything. And I stopped, and I, I said, I have to tell these people that you're not dead, but you're alive. They still think you're dead. But you're not dead, you're alive. Because I was amazed. <laughs> he wasn't dead, he was alive. And I don't know what this means, but he said, um, you don't worry about them. You follow me. 
And that's my story ever since. Just follow Jesus. Just trusting in Jesus. The truth is that the cross is empty. We have big fights about this stuff sometimes. Get mad when people put Jesus back on the cross. He's not on the cross. He's raised. The message that was sent to the disciples and to Peter, the one who betrayed him, is I am not dead but alive. In that place where he's going ahead to meet you, you will see him just as he said you would. You will see Jesus. Now that would be a great place to end the story. But there's one more verse. Verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women fled from the tomb and they said nothing to no one because they were afraid. I mean, after that, they left and they said nothing to no one, what Mark records, because they were afraid of what that means. Church, listen to me. We got to stop being afraid. We got to stop being afraid. This resurrection after death is our only hope. Like, it's our only hope. Sometimes you get into conversation with people and they say, well, you know, maybe, you know, he, you know Jesus was a great teacher and all that stuff, but, and they just leave it at that. I, I, I like Jesus. I kind of like Jesus. But when you say, how about a bodily resurrection? How about a grave that can't hold him? How about when you're facing, listen to me, when you're facing problems in this life and you're beat down and you're beat up and you're wore out, man, and you're like, I can't go on. How about a resurrection then? How about a new life then? How about when you're facing death's door and there's a certain end and you're going to breathe your last? How about hope in that moment for a real, literal, physical resurrection? Because here's the truth. If we see Jesus on the cross where we should be, that's true. And we should be dying there instead, that's true. But that's only half the story because we should see through the cross to the resurrection from the dead. That will also be true for us. Real, literal, physical resurrection. And if you don't get that, you're without hope. I've had people say to me before, and I'm going to close with this. Even if I get to the end of my life, and I believed in Jesus, and I've been a good boy or a good girl, and Jesus ain't there, I'll be like, that's okay, because I had a better life because of Jesus. And I say, baloney. Baloney. That means you've been deceived. But listen to me, brothers and sisters. If you get to the end of your life, and the world has said, it's over, he's out, he's done. And in that moment, God says, get up. That's hope. The death ain't the end. How many times do we as Christians mourn? Oh, it's so over. It's over. It's not over. It ain't over. The real, physical, literal resurrection of Jesus Christ is our only hope in this life. And everything else is a false gospel. Don't do it. Don't believe a lie. Believe the truth. He was raised from the dead. That word... He is risen, happens 19 times in 16 chapters. Get up, stand up, come out. Jesus is calling people out of death into life. That's the true gospel. 
And if you stop short of the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that he's not on the cross but alive, and the fact that the work is finished, you're missing the point. So my questions for you are this. Do you believe in your heart, in your heart, that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you believe that? And then the second question I have is, if you believe that, is that Jesus the Lord of your life? Do you wake up and say, okay, boss, what are we doing today? Because if you believe those two things, you will be saved. You'll be saved. And you won't be saved like that dude going, I remember back in 1978, I gave my life to Jesus a long time ago. Hopefully that, no, you're going to be saved through death. In Jesus' name. That's the truth. I'm going to pray with you. Close your eyes and pray with me if you would. Father, not for many words because your words are few, but your gospel is real. I pray, Father God, for those among us who are hopelessly lost, that you might save them. And God, not by my asking, because I have no authority to ask for their salvation, but by your grace and mercy. How do I know, Father, this can happen? Because you saved me. That's how. Would you save your people today for your glory? We love you so much. We thank you for the delight we have in the Lord, for the truth of the resurrection, and for the hope, the hope that doesn't disappoint us. May your Holy Spirit reign in hearts and minds today as we submit to you. In your perfect will, we pray. Amen.